to Romans chapter 14. And if you don't have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and raise your hand, keep it raised really high, and then someone will be able to get you a copy of God's Word so that you can follow along with us. Um, appreciate that. Man, the Lord is smiling upon you. And so am I. Uh, um, yeah, so you can follow along with us, and then you can have a copy of the, if you don't own a copy, please take the one that we are, that we are uh, handing out to you so that you could keep it and grow in an understanding of God's word. So here's where we're going today. Um, first, we are getting towards the end of Romans. This is Romans 14. We're going to do one week and then another week. So two weeks in Romans chapter 14. We'll get to 15, and then we'll get to 16, and we'll be done. And we'll be done with Romans. And I don't know about you guys. I know everybody doesn't feel this way, but I am ready for Romans to be done. Um, I feel like we started Romans 10 years ago. And the reality of it is we did. Um, and so it's, there, there's a lot that we've covered, and I'm, I'm ready. I, I am ready to go ahead and, and close this book, never to be taught again, at least by me. Um, the next guy can come and teach it again. I'll be in heaven looking at him going, it's going to take longer than you think. <laughs> it's going to take way longer than you think. Just out of curiosity, we've done this in all services. How many of you guys are new to redemption since we started Romans? Like you started coming to redemption, and we're already teaching through Romans. Go ahead and raise your hand. Yeah, it's been like that every service. Um, our children in our children's ministry, many of them were born when we started Romans, and um, they've all received their driver's license now, which is amazing, so it's been, it's been a lot of fun. So here's what we're doing in Romans chapter 14. Um, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, um, has been for 11 chapters, the chapter 1 all the way through 11, is really unpacking theologically what is the gospel, and how are we made right before God, and how it's good news, and that means there's bad news and there's good news. The bad news is we were separated from God, um, but in his loving kindness nature, we are created in his image. And though we all fell in sin with Adam, that we've been redeemed in Christ Jesus. And then he begins to unpack what that looks like for us and how we're in the family of God and living in the family of God, how we are this new creation. And then when we get to Romans 12, he says, now in a, as a result of that and as a response to that life and love, that we are to give our whole bodies, everything we think about, our vocations, our creativity, that we are to give it to the Lord as an act of worship. And then for weeks, we've talked through what that looks like in the language and position and posture of love. And then um, what we'll pick up today is Paul continuing to talk to a group of Christians in the church that is in Rome, wants to be able to talk about a few things. One, what is known as Christian freedoms and how we're able to have our freedoms, which are going to look different, different opinions and different preferences about things in which God did not give us clear instructions on. So these are freedoms, and we'll talk about that. How do we have our freedoms and yet become one and remain one? And so this week, Paul's dealing with primary to, to Christians, don't judge one another, don't look down on one another because of our preferences, but understand that God alone is the one who we answer to. That God alone is the one and whom is our judge and who has given his life for us that we may be free, not just to do what we want, but under his lordship to be one in relationship to one another. And so my three points for, for this morning, uh, looking at verse uh, chapter 14, 1 through 12, first is we got to understand that we are not the ultimate judge of, our, of others. That we're not to ultimately judge others. Number two is that we're not the ultimate judge of ourselves. That there's not a great deal of autonomy, that there's still authority. And then number three, only God can judge me. I was going to say only God can judge us, but keeping consistent with uh, Tupac's song, I, I wanted to make sure we have that. So we'll get through that. But before we do, would you guys bow your heads and pray with me? We'll ask God the Holy Spirit to guide our time. Father, we thank you for this, this evening, God. We thank you for this holiday weekend in which we can be with friends and family. God, we thank you that we can gather together as your people. And so, Lord, we pray right now in the name of Jesus, because of your work and your mission, that you would just send an overwhelming um, pressure and um, presence of your spirit, Lord. 
That as we open up the word today, Lord, that you would allow us to see ourselves, you would allow us to see who you are, and draw us again to your good news. God, I pray for those who will be baptized this evening, Lord, that your hand would be upon them, that they'd be able to experience the life and love of Christ, Lord, and the outward expression of what you're already doing in their life. And so, God, I pray that we take the word today, Lord, we'd apply it to our lives and everything that we do, and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when it comes to Christian freedoms, my, my first experience of, of this is that I grew up um, not as a Christian, but grew up going to church, never trusting and resting in the work of Jesus. And the church that I grew up in, and maybe some of you guys grew up in, when it comes to certain um, like freedoms, um, mainly like drinking and things like that, like that was a no-no. Like in my church, if you were someone who would drink, that, that was like the equivalent of like kicking it with Satan, right? So you, you would never have a beer. Like that, that, was, that was bad people drink beer. So I didn't grow up as a Christian, and so I, I, I partake, partook in some of those events. And so when I became a Christian, I was a very, very young Christian, probably maybe a few months. I just graduated from college, and I was teaching out of school, and I was coaching football. And the football coaches wanted to go to happy hour. And happy hour is usually a time that a restaurant will have that you can go and have half-off appetizers and drinks. Because I know none of you guys have ever been, so I just wanted to let you know what it is, all right? So, so we go to happy hour, and there was also this church in Gilbert that I wanted to check out their college ministry. I know I wasn't in college, but, you know, whatever, right? And so the, um, the, it was on a Wednesday night or something like that, and I wanted to go. So I went to the happy hour. I had two drinks, right? That's what you always tell the cops. I only had two drinks and then drove over to this church, and then all this insecurity, all this, uh, my background came up, don't drink, don't drink. Definitely don't drink and then go to church, right? So I show up and I'm thinking, oh man, these people all think I'm drunk, but I'm not, but they think I am. You ever had that experience where you think, well, not that particular experience, but that, that experience where you think everybody's looking at you like, man, and I felt like when I walked in this room, everybody was looking at me. And it was already weird enough to begin with because if you are, uh, if you're here and you're a young Christian or you're not a Christian, you know what it's like to walk into a church service. You don't know any of the language. You sit down before they even have to read scripture. And then you have to get back up. You don't know the rhythms. You don't know the songs. Everything is kind of foreign to you. And that's me in this room. And I think the guy next to me thinks I'm drunk, Right? And he keeps looking at me, and I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking, oh, this is bad. Well, the service ends. I go to talk to the pastor, who's Tyler Johnson, who many of you know, who's a lead pastor of All Redemption. And Tyler's leading it, and we kind of had known each other. And he was like, hey, Ricardo, I want to talk to you. And I didn't want to talk to him because I didn't want him to smell the, you know, the Michelob on my breath. And so I'm, I'm, I'm walking out, and he's like, no, 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 brother, brother. You know, Christians, they don't let you go. No, brother, brother. And uh, and, and he's talking to me, and the whole time, I, I, I'm just lean back, <laughs> like lean back. Um, Tyler's away from me. I'm a distant from him. And later, he asked me, he goes, why were you acting so weird? I'm like, I didn't want you to think I was drunk, man. I only had 1.5 beers. And, and, you know, I really wanted to come worship God, but, man, I just I knew I'm not supposed to be doing that. And because I hated that experience so bad, and I thought, man, there's no way I can really live for Jesus and do that, I said, I'm giving up alcohol forever. And what happened is, as I continued to grow as a Christian, I realized it wasn't just my conviction that I shouldn't drink alcohol. I had a conviction that I didn't think any Christian should. And so the first guy that I was able to lead to Jesus was my roommate, and I began walking and discipling him. And he said, hey, can I have a beer? And I said, not if you want to follow Jesus. I mean, you possibly can. The Bible doesn't really say you can't, but if you do, you're not really serious about this. And then my world got rocked. Um, these leaders of the church that I was going to had like a, one of the guys had a bachelor party, and I showed up, and they were in there drinking beer and smoking cigars and I thought, this is hell. Like, <laughs> what are you? You guys clearly are not Christians. Um, 
And it was a problem. It was a problem. And something that God had to really work on my heart because I really didn't understand the scripture when it came to these freedoms. Well, Paul is dealing with very similar things. People like me who go from one end of the pendulum to the next. In fact, um, just the context here that we'll look at is he's talking to people who are trying to be reconciled in this church. When you read the New Testament, most of the New Testament from Acts all the way on is beginning to, to deal with the gospel, but how the gospel begins to bring different people together. In fact, when you read Romans, it's not just a theological book. Paul is dealing with the issue of how do we take these Jewish people who had, grew up in one particular culture and then take these Gentile people, Gentiles who were non-ethnic Jewish people, and how do we bring them together? How do they live life together under the Lordship of Christ? And his answer every single time is none other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. But none of it understanding that our life is centered around the personal work of Jesus. Because when it is centered around the personal work of Jesus, then you have an eclectic group of people, no matter what your backgrounds are, what your preferences are. And there are certain things in the Bible where God is silent. That he does not give us explicit things to think through or to do. Like we have the wisdom of scripture, but he doesn't say you should uh, have a drink or not have a drink. He doesn't give us those explicits. And those usually are known as Christian freedoms. And so that's what Paul is talking about this morning. And the first point that I have is an understanding our freedoms and whatever freedoms you have and whatever, whatever side or whatever stance you take, that when it's not something that's clearly prescribed in Scripture by God, that we have to realize we are not the ultimate judge of others. Read with me here in verses 1. He says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person only eats vegetables. Um, for those of you guys who are, who are vegetarians, that's real comforting. Uh, <laughs> what Paul is not talking about is vegetarians are weak or not. Let me, let me explain some context and some background here. I've already said that he's trying to bring these groups of people together and how they can worship under the light and life and love of Jesus Christ. And so what he's dealing with here is you have one group of people who are called weak, right? And the weak people are consistently made up of Jewish people who grew up as Jewish, Jewish Christians. They are trusting in Jesus for salvation alone um, by grace working through faith, okay? They trust in the gospel. That, that nothing else. This is different than Galatians. And for those of you who know about the book of Galatians, Paul is very aggressive in saying they, the people that he's talking about in Galatians are not Christians. Those were people who said you needed to believe in Jesus for salvation and rituals. Um, meaning, if you add anything else to the gospel, that's no longer the gospel. That's Galatians. What he's talking about here are Christians, people who love Jesus and who believe in the gospel for salvation, not by works, by anything they can do. However, in order for them to grow in holiness, they believe the way that they will grow in holiness is by continuing some of the rituals that they had before they knew Jesus. And not only do they have these personal convictions on themselves, but they have these convictions on Christianity. And so they get to the point where they can potentially despise those who don't have that conviction. On the other hand, you have the strong. The strong are the meat eaters, right? They're the ones who say, we understand the full implications of the gospel and that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. And so we don't have to consider certain days as more holy than other days. We, we can eat meat. We can eat all these things. Because a week, they weren't eating meat just because they thought it was bad for them. Because they knew that some of the meat that was sold in the market had previously been offered to idols, to false gods. And because of their conscience, they didn't want to partake in it. The same thing with the wine. Where the strong on the other hand said, we don't believe in false gods. We believe that there's one God and those are just fake things. And so we enjoy the meat. We're meat eaters. We're strong. We're not meat eaters. We're weak, okay? That's what they're talking about here. Um, not so much if you're a vegetarian or not. Okay, hear me not. By any means saying, if you're a vegetarian, you're weak. I understand that. We'd lose half of our church, right? So I'm not saying that because the Bible is not saying that. 
I'm not saying that because the Bible is not saying that, all right? And so here's what we have here. Paul is saying, when it comes to the weak, he says, because what he's clearly saying is, the weak people are not really living in the full implications of the gospel. But no point in here does he tell them to stop. <laughs> the whole time he continues to point them to Jesus. But the first thing he says is, don't quarrel, don't fight, but welcome them in, right? He says, welcome him in, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes in eating anything, while the weak person only eats vegetables. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Here's what he's saying with the two people. He says, welcome each other. And that language, welcome, is, is the way that you just accept somebody in the same way that Christ has accepted us. That he goes out of his way, he doesn't wait for us to change. He doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up, but he welcomes us. And in the same way, he says, in the same church, you have two people who love Jesus. One person who says, I, have a, I, I don't have the freedom to eat this particular meat, drink this particular wine. Another person says, I have the freedom to do it. The person who has the freedom to do it should not be judging the other person, saying, you just don't get it. And the person who doesn't have the freedom should not despise them, as I did with my, these, these Christian leaders. Of, you know, they must not be Christian. They must not want to pursue holiness. They're, they're, they're kind of flirting with the edge because he's a freedom. Now you go, okay, what are freedoms today, because I don't really think that in a Christian church today, it's about meat that's been sacrificed to idols, at least not in our culture. So what are the freedoms that come up? So in our congregation, um, the quick, easy freedoms that come up are usually centered around, first and foremost, drinking and alcohol. Um, Another one that comes up is the music we listen to. Do we listen to secular music or Christian music? Um, Movies. Should we watch rated R movies or should we only watch Facing the Giants? Um, should, should, should we, <laughs> um, it, it comes to family planning as a married couple, should we do birth control or not birth control? It comes to schooling oftentimes. And I know many of you don't have kids, but God willingly you will one day and it's going to become the schooling. And when I, when I became a Christian, there was a lot of things I learned about Christian culture that I had no idea until I became a Christian. I never knew people argued over which school they should go to. I never knew people argued over immunization or not. I never knew people argued over cloth diapers or not. I never knew that my kids should have peanut allergies. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that, that, that came to be that I'm like, wow, man, I thought it was just Jesus. But, man, there's a lot of stuff that goes on with this stuff. These, these, are, these are freedoms that we have. Where do you vote? Well, how do you vote? Who do you vote for? Are you on the left? Are you on the right? Are you neither? Are you moderate? Are you progressive? All of those things, hear me, all of those things are not clearly prescribed for us in Scripture. And so when we, we, as a body, in this room alone, there are people with different preferences, different opinions. And Paul is saying we should be one without fighting over those positions, without trying to convince each other over those positions. But we should be in life together, learning under the life and love of Jesus. Now, as someone who has firm convictions, there are moments where I see friends of mine, um, people that I love, I I, I see things and I want to be like, that's wrong. But the reality of it is, it's not. It's wrong for me because my conscience has a different conviction. But it's free for them to be able to enjoy whatever that may be. And so Paul says, when it comes to that, welcome them. Don't judge them. Don't look down upon them. Don't say, oh, they're just too conservative. They don't get it. Or don't say they're just crazy liberal, they don't love Jesus. Because when it comes to Christians, we're neither conservative nor liberal. The gospel gives us a totally new category. It's called love. And it's acceptance. And it's not acceptance in the way that our culture talks about tolerance. It's acceptance in the name and the blood of Jesus Christ. That are there moments when a Christian should judge? Absolutely. That when God has talked about something very clearly in his word, 
that when it comes to sexual ethics, when it comes to the way that we treat each other, when it comes to loving our neighbor, all these things are clear. No Christian can say, you know what, my freedom tells me I don't have to love my neighbor. Well, your Bible tells you you do. And so that's something that we walk alongside lovingly. And when we see these things, to correct these things in the lives of our friends and our brothers and our sisters in Christ, we listen to Jesus. He says, this is how you do it. When you go to somebody and you want to correct them, um, make sure you understand that there's a log in your eye and just a speck in theirs. And what that means is that not you have to wait till your sin's done and then you can correct them because that's never going to happen. It's just that your sin should seem massive to you that you are acquainted more with your sin that when it comes to their issue, whatever it is, if it's sin, if it's against what God has said, and then you go carefully. Just like if you've ever gotten a speck out of someone's eye or a kid's eye, you say, stay still, you open up their eye, and you carefully try to remove it in love and care. Um, so Paul is not giving a general statement of saying never judge. He's saying when it comes to preferences, when it comes to freedoms, you're not the judge of others. In fact, he begins to conclude this section in verses 4. He says this. He asks the question, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. He said, who are you to question? Who are you? It's just kind of like, who died and made you king? Who, who are you? And in that, in that day in the Roman Greco world, when it comes to um, etiquette for hospitality, it was like a big no-no to walk into somebody else's house and begin to critique their servant. And so when Paul says, who are you to question somebody else's servant? He says, you know, that doesn't fly. That, that'd be like someone walking into your apartment, someone walking into your home, your dorm, your car, wherever you live, right? And that's somebody walking into your place and, and looking at your interior decoration going, oh, that should not go there. Oh, I would, you know, right? You get that? Parents, we get it when you, and other people try to tell you how to raise your kids. Oh, that's what your kid's wearing today. You let your kids do that? You get really, what? What? Like, you know, it's like, it's my kid, right? <laughs> Paul's saying, who are you? Because this servant is actually a servant of God. He or she is a child of God. Are you going to question God and say God doesn't know how to raise his kids? Are you going to question God and say he doesn't know what's best for this person? In fact, the way he says when it comes to us not being the ultimate judge, he concludes verse 4 with saying this, is, is before his master, he stands or falls. And he says this, and he will be upheld. The servant will be upheld, the weak or the strong, um, for the Lord is able to make him stand. What he's talking about there is God has more of an invested interest in your life and your walk with Jesus than anybody else. That God cares about you far more than I do and far more than anybody else. That he loves you. And so that the people who are quote-unquote strong that are judging, you've got to realize you're not God. There's nothing you can do to pull them up. There's nothing you can do to save them. You can't die for them. One has already done that. He's God and he's God alone. And he will finish the work. He says, he who began a good work will, will finish it all the way to completion. And so what Paul is saying is first and foremost, when it comes to these preferences, we are not the ultimate judge of others, that we are to welcome them, embrace them, and love them, and let the grace of God work in their life in the same way that it's worked in our life. Amen? Interesting enough is that Paul, in saying first that we're not the ultimate judge of others, begins to next say we're not even the ultimate judge of ourselves, which brings me to my second point, that this is not Paul saying, do what you want to do. Whatever, whatever you feel like doing, just do it. You know, I mean, God, God gets it. He understands your situation. He knew you were born in this day and this time. And just do whatever you want. Just don't judge other people. That's just kind of this relativistic approach. That, that's not it. Because what happens is when it comes to freedoms, many of us begin to pursue pleasure at the exclusion of praise. Meaning that we don't understand that everything that we do, we do in, in a way and a means to be able to honor God and to worship him. 
And so when we pursue these particular preferences, whatever they may be, and the list is, is inexhaustible, is that we begin to pursue it um, for autonomy at the exclusion of authority. Meaning we want to be able to do it for ourselves, but we don't understand that there is a governing authority, namely God himself. And so it's not that it's unguided or unguarded and we, we could just do whatever we wanted to do, that this is something that ultimately has to be shaped by God. And everything that we do, we do it to praise God. In fact, here, here, here's what I've heard before. I've heard some people coming to freedoms would say this. Hey, you know what, Ricardo? I'm, I'm, this is a true story. I'm leaving my wife. No biblical grounds. Why? You know what? I just came to the point that I have peace at it with my heart. I have p- I'm peace with it. And I'm like, well, interesting you just say that. I have peace in my heart that I should slap you right now. <laughs> now, should I do that? <laughs> right? No. No, just because, it, just because you don't have conviction on it, um, just because you don't, have, uh, you don't feel it, doesn't mean that it's still something you should do. In fact, here's how Paul says, says it here. He says, one person is, verse 5, one person esteems one day better than another, while the other esteems all days alike. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, and the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Here's what he's saying. The one who observes the day and the one who doesn't. Both of them are doing it to honor God. The one who eats meat, the one who doesn't eat meat, eats meat, eat meat. He don't be eating meat, whatever, right? They do it to be able to honor God. Um, He's saying ultimately everything that they're doing is to honor God, to praise God. Meaning it is not that they're just making a decision on their own. What Paul is talking about here, if you look back with verse 6, he says this. The one who observes, excuse me, the end of verse 5. He says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. What Paul is saying there, he's not saying, do what you want to do, do what's right, uh, or excuse me, do what feels right. He's not saying that. He's saying that, talking about conscience. And here's what conscience is. Every single one of us have a conscience, whether we love Jesus or not. To the follower of Christ, the Spirit of God is in you. But that doesn't mean your conscience is completely perfect and tells you the right things to do. Your your conscience is a human faculty that is to be shaped by what you perceive to be the highest degree of truth and authority. And if that highest degree of truth and authority is none other than Jesus himself, then we go back to Romans chapter 12 when he says that our minds are to be renewed daily after the good news of Jesus Christ, after the word of God. And that means as we continue to grow and we submit ourselves to scripture, as we submit ourselves to prayer, as we submit ourselves to the word of God, what he's saying is our conscience begins to be shaped. And so even though our mind, we need to be convinced. And another thing that means is when you have your conscience, that there should be a conviction. If there's one thing I would say that we lack in a lot of areas, it's conviction. Now, conviction is not, I read a book and so I did what that guy said to do. Conviction is not, Ricardo talked about it and so I did it. No. Conviction is you before the Lord and prayer. Before his word. And then with his people. For the proverb says that with many counselors we will succeed. And so that's God's word. That's prayer before God, and that's also his people before you make a decision on whatever those preferences may be. That means there needs to be conviction. You don't just do it just to do it. And, and in fact, here, here's how I would say that, that we, we get to this point. Um, sometimes we get to the point to do things because we think it's just right, when the reality of it is, do you realize that we could just be getting numb to our own sin? And that is not a person who follows Jesus in this room who's never been numb to sin. You can look at one point in your life, and maybe you're there now, where there's something clearly you would have said as a, as a believer, I'm never going to do these things. And then later, whether it's you've, you were introduced to freedoms, but somehow your freedoms have become an opportunity for your flesh and for your sin, and now, now you're numb to it. I think of it this way. When it comes to uh, um, 
tattoos, right? And so um, I was always, which is another freedom, by the way. <laughs> when it comes to um, tattoos, I was deathly afraid of needles, did not want needles. However, I wanted a tattoo, right? And I had a problem. And so my love for wanting to get a tattoo superseded the, the needle thing, right? And let me deal with the tattoo thing here real quick. Um, that's a conviction that you have to have to have a tattoo, okay? Um, and my family, um, I believe that it's okay for my wife, for me to be able to have a tattoo. I told my kids if they want one, they can have it. I showed them a, a YouTube video of what happens when they do it. They never want to get one anymore, all right? And, and, and so um, I will probably never get one because I can't convince my wife that I should pay the money for it since she's the highest degree of authority in our house. She won. And so there we go, all right? Coming back to my illustration. I got in that chair, and the needle went in, and I'm, I'm freaking out, right? And, you know, after a while, those of you guys who've had a tattoo, you know, because I'm sure 65% of you have. And, and after a while, it didn't hurt as much. And I wasn't as afraid as that needle. And you know what? As soon as it was done, guess what? Guess what? It didn't hurt. I wanted another one, right? <laughs> you talk to anyone who's had a tattoo, as soon as they get up, it's like, oh, I wonder what's going to go on this arm, right? It's like Pringles, man. Like, you know, you just you can't just have one or whatever that commercial is, right? <laughs> Point being, you may start here and saying, here's what I believe God's called me to do in these areas. But then you start here and you get here and you get here and you can be numb to it. And the only, only way we can prevent ourselves from that is God's written word, is that continuing relationship with him. That when he says that you need to be convinced, it's not that you are the ultimate judge over yourself. It's that you're letting the ultimate judge, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ, begin to shape your thoughts, to begin to shape your actions. And so let's deal with a couple of ones here that are, that are here that I would say that come up quite uh, frequently. Um, the first one is drinking. Drinking comes up in our congregation. I've been at churches before and been a part of churches that, that if you were a Christian who drink, drinks, you don't tell anybody. Like, you, you, you drink, like, by yourself with one other Christian who knows Jesus, and, like, it's, you don't tell anybody, you want anybody to know, right? Our church is, like, the opposite. I feel like you go places in our church, and it's like, like you're not going to offer me a beer? What, you don't love me? Right? When we were just talking about love earlier, Right? And, and, and I believe in some cases you have people in our church who feel um, compelled to have to drink to fit in. You don't have to fit in with anybody. You have to have a conviction for yourself. I think we willy-lilly just do things without any conviction. I turn 21, so I start drinking. That's not what Paul's talking about here. You don't just do these things just because everybody else does them, just because you turned 21 and you wanted to obey the law of the land, and so I waited until I was 21, although that was that one week I was in Mexico, but I was 18 and it was legal there. No, 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 right? No, 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 no. What is God's word saying? What is God telling me that I should do for myself, for my family, for my community? Is this something I should engage in? And if so, freely do it. Freely do it. Being drunk is a sin, but having a drink is not. But that's only if that's your freedom. Another, one that, another way this comes up is schooling. We, we, we joke around with schooling a lot. I know most of you guys are going, but I don't have any kids. Move on. No, 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 no. Because I remember hearing this argument before I had kids, and I thought, this is ridiculous. Who argues about this? And now that we're thinking about schooling with our kids, I'm like, Holly, we've got to figure this thing out, right? And I, and I know this. As a lead pastor, if I decided to do something that was against the curve um, for schooling, and then I took my biblical evictions, and I maybe wrote a blog about it or talked about it, Many of the people in our church would begin to do the same thing. I've seen it, and you've seen it. If the, if the lead pastor begins to homeschool and makes a great charge for why everybody should homeschool, everybody in that church begins homeschooling. Kids about to be seniors in high school, get out of that public school before Satan gets you, right? <laughs> and here's the deal. Is that a conviction? That might be my conviction, 
which that's not personally my conviction, but it, it could be somebody's conviction. So I'm thankful, and we've joked about this before, that on our leadership team here in Redemption, we have people who homeschool their kids, people who will public school their kids, uh, and, and, and me and Holly are thinking about not schooling our kids at all. Um, <laughs> so, so that we can go, hey, guys, whatever freedoms you have, right? As long as your kids can hire our kids, then we'll do it, right? No, no, that, that's not true, but it, it, it is... It is a reality of just going, you have to come to your conviction. So if you are going to homeschool, that's fine. But don't do it out of fear. Don't do it because you think, you know, I want to protect my kids from the big bad world. Because here's the reality. You are a part of this big bad world. And they still live with you. And they can't escape that as much as they try. They can't. So, but if you come to God's word and you look and you're saying, this is my conviction for my family. And I believe this is what God's called me to do. Like the many people at our church that make that decision, do it. Holly and I, for now, um, will, we believe, for now, this could change. We think our boys are going to go to public school right down the street. And, 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 and part of that is we have a conviction for that. Um, and you could talk to me personally about that, but I don't, I don't want to tell you my personal conviction because I don't want you to run away with it and go, oh, this is why we should do it. No, no, you have to have a conviction for it. The next one's family planning. Whenever we do premarital, there's always the question comes up, should we take birth control or not? I grew up Catholic. Catholic Church told me not to. Um, should we take birth control or not? Listen, here's what I always say. That's not a question you should be asking me to answer for you. You know why? Because that's not a question the Bible clearly answers. So here's what I usually do. I say, here's one guy, Randy Alcorn, who has a great, who's a great biblical guy who talks about why you shouldn't, and he has good biblical reasons for it. You read this. Here's another guy, John Piper, who I believe is very, very theologically sound, and he has a reason why you could and shouldn't have freedom. And then here's some medical things so that you can understand if you do decide to take pill that you don't have one that's abortifacient, meaning that it will terminate the pregnancy if you were to get pregnant. Take these, you and the person who you plan on getting married to, that's important, pray about those things, and then you make your decision, I'm not telling you what we do. It's not a secret. I just don't want you to say, oh, I did it because my pastor did it. No, no, no. What Paul is saying is each person should be convinced. That's conviction. I am not the ultimate judge. You're not the ultimate judge, even for yourself, but ultimately God is the one who judges us. Um, I remember being in a context of a church where the, the deal was there was a book called Raising Kids God's Way. And if everybody was raising kids God's way by this book, and it just created this tension because if you weren't raising kids by this book, guess what? You were basically raising them Satan's way. So, And there was just a divide on that. It was just, just a book. It's a book. We're all going to read books on marriages, and we're going to read books that say you need to eat around the table with your family seven nights a week. Well, what if your family can't? Listen, God does not tell us these things. So what does he give us? How do we have wisdom, right? Here's a principle. Where God is silent, the Bible is silent. And so proceed with wisdom, with everything else you know about God. And when I say he's silent, that means he doesn't explicitly speak on it. doesn't mean that he doesn't speak, that he may have something for you, that he may have something for your particular conviction. And you need to hold that conviction and not place that conviction on anybody else. But first and foremost, you don't just get to do it freely. It's something that is to be shaped by God, shaped by his spirit. And I'm telling you, when that happens, and we're able to do that without judging one another, just imagine what that looks like. It, it begins to look like what I feel like our church is already beginning to look like. I, I wish you guys can sit, stand up here all day long and just see the different people and have the conversations that I have with people. There are some different people in this church. And I don't say that in a sarcastic way. There are some different people in this church too, but, but they're just different people. I love when I walk through the parking lot and I see a bumper sticker that says, you know, I hate Obama or something like that. And I see one that says, I absolutely love Obama. I'm like, this is awesome. I mean, the sticker could change, but this is awesome, Right? <laughs> 
But the fact, what I mean by that is we have both politically conservative and politically liberal and people who are apolitical that worship together. There are people who really do say, I believe, honestly, that everybody should homeschool their kid, but I can't force it upon them. And there's some people going, I would never send my kids home. They're going to be witnesses in public school. And yet they worship together. Guys, that's called being the church because what we're doing, we're taking secondary issues and not making them the main thing, but the main thing centers around Jesus, that we have our personal convictions and God begins to work in our life, namely through the work of Christ. And so first point, Paul says, is when it comes to preferences, we're not the ultimate judge. When it comes to even our own personal preferences, we're not even the ultimate judge of ourselves, but everything we do, we, we do it for the Lord. And then Paul does this. Paul does not give reasons of why they should begin to eat meat or not. He does what we should always do. He goes straight back to the gospel. He doesn't give them lists and lines and laws. He goes straight back to Jesus. Read with me in verse 7. He says, for none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. Here's what Paul is saying. At the end of the day, none of us belong to ourselves. We all belong to God. At the end of the day, none of us came to a conclusion on ourselves. If it's something that is good, that is right, that is holy, it's because Jesus did this. And then what he says, to this end, to bring us together, that we may be one, to give us the true freedom, to be freed from sin, to give us true life, to have eternal life with himself. He says, this is what Jesus did. He died and he lived again, that he may be Lord meaning that he may be the judge of us all. And so for one, on one case, let me deal with the strong. Those of you who believe that you understand the implications of the gospel, that you understand your freedoms, and you really understand how God has freed you and you can enjoy certain things, here's what I would tell you. If you're anything like me, here's your problem. I found this with me. I hate prejudice. I really do. And I hate people who are prejudiced against others because of their political views. I hate people who are prejudiced others for, their, for, for race, for um, social economic reasons, for whatever. When they just don't begin to understand the other, because that other has another story. It, it bothers me. And so whenever I'm around Christians who I feel like are so wound tight that they begin to just throw bombs at other churches, they begin to throw bombs at other people, it, it, it bothers me because I feel like they show no grace. But here's what I found about myself. I begin to show no grace to those who show no grace. It is a problem. Someone who's just struggling, who's constantly in sin, who's confessing it, and my life's a mess, I have so much grace for that person. But for the person who feels like they have it together and they're tied tight to the word of God and all they can do is throw bombs, I feel like I'm not giving you nothing. I want to talk to you. I want to distance myself from you. That's a problem. Because to this end, that's not why Jesus died for me. Jesus did not die for me and Jesus was not raised for me so that, so that it, he didn't wait for me to figure it out. He didn't wait for me to extend grace in order that he could show grace. But he showed grace in spite of me. And I was able to freely receive this grace. And if I was able to freely receive this grace, though I was enemies with God, then I should be able to reciprocate that grace to those around me, no matter what the preferences may be. And to the weak. Understand this. Paul does call it weak. That when you begin to judge or despise people because of particular freedoms that they have, um, I understand at least your intentions, intentions of saying, I just want to pursue holiness and I want to pursue righteousness. And so I kind of add these things so that, so that I can make sure that I'm on the right track. But understand the gospel. He says to this end, Jesus lived and Jesus died and Jesus was raised again. You know what that means? That when it comes to the New Testament, God himself didn't come give us more laws. He didn't say, you know what? They didn't figure out the laws in the Old Testament. So the New Testament were given more laws. No. When Jesus came, and the gospel in itself is not to give us more laws. The gospel gave us more than that, better than that. It gave us Jesus. It gave us Jesus. Not something to do, but someone who to believe in. Not a list to follow, but someone to follow. 
Not something that we can do more of, but something we can receive. And so your holiness in itself is not so much about your activity. Your holiness is about what Christ has done on your behalf. As you're trying to pursue righteousness, you've got to realize that Jesus becomes your righteousness, that he lived the life that you could have never lived on your behalf. And so now when God looks at you, he sees you as righteous, that you are truly free, that there's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less, that you get a chance to walk in that freedom. So when it comes to, ultimately, how we become one, we understand we're not to judge everybody. We have a judge, and his name is Jesus. We're not even the ultimate judge of ourselves. And then lastly... Paul wraps his first point of saying, only God can judge us, or only God can judge me. Tupac. He says this in verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one will give an account of himself to God. This might be the one of the, this, this part we go, we wish Paul wouldn't have wrote that, but he did. He did. And he's saying this, every single person in this room, every single person in this world, at one point will bow their knees. He's quoting from Isaiah, and he, all, he also quotes this in Philippians. He says, every knee and every, every tongue, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he's Lord. That means whether you trust in Jesus or not, one day you're going to see him and go, man, you really were who you said you were. And then in verse 12, he says, and so every single one of us, we're going to give an account. And I want to deal with two things here. The first is this, um, if you've never believed in Jesus, if you've never trusted him, if you think this is kind of bull, I don't believe any of this, it just seems like a social construct, you believe in it because you're an American, you believe it because you grew up in this country, I, I just don't believe in it. Um, okay, here's the thing I'm supposed to tell you, and I'm going to give an account if I don't, that one day you will see Jesus, and um, that moment is he will see him seated on the throne as judge. In fact, I often do this at funerals. When I get asked to speak at funerals with a person who has gone, has not trusted in Jesus, and I meet with their family, like we're not Christian, I never just say, hey, they're in a better place. Why? Because I have to be accountable to the word of God. I don't go in there and say he's, you know, doing, I I go in there and I'm honest with them. But in that, I always say, um, if this person were here, let me tell you what they would tell you. Jesus is real. He is the son of God, and he sits at his right hand. And the best thing you can ever do is trusting him now because it doesn't get any better from here. So let me just tell you this. If you've never trusted in Jesus, you've never placed your faith in Jesus, and you don't in this life, you will meet him. And when you meet him, he will judge you for every single sin that you've ever done because he is holy. And, his, and, and sin will never be able to live in his presence. And that's a reality. And that will be the not, not dealing with Jesus. Not because of what you did or what you didn't do. Because of what you did not do in Jesus. You did not trust in Jesus. That he gave you his son and you rejected his son and you rejected his son. And I'm here and saying, don't reject his son. Because if you do, in that day when you meet Jesus, it will be the worst day for the rest of your entire life. And that's the reality. Um, the, the, the good news always proceeds the bad news. The bad news is that we are sinful people separated from God and which we cannot make ourselves right. The good news is Jesus doesn't want that for you. He doesn't want you to sit at him and be judged because of your sin. And you go, well, why? how did you know that? Because he died for it. Because he came to give you an opportunity that he himself on the cross would say, I would absorb your sin. I would absorb your wrath. That you will never have to have that experience. That you'll never have to bow your knee and confess and then be fearful of me. That you could trust in him. And so Romans says this, if you confess with your mouth, that is you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord um, and you believe in your heart, then you will be saved because it's with the mouth one confesses and acknowledges that you are a sinner and God is holy and he has given you Jesus as a substitute for your sin and for righteousness. 
And if you believe in your heart, meaning there's faith, that you're going to live your entire life for this Jesus. You don't need to figure the Bible out right away. For the rest of your life, that you have a journey in following Jesus. If you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart, then you will be saved. And being saved there is being saved from the wrath of God. Being saved from that particular moment of judgment, a fearful, um, eternal separation from God. The other side of it is that every single Christian who has trusted in Jesus, all of us who's believed in Jesus, we still will give an account to him. But I, and I've meditated on this because I'm still going, I, I don't, I still, I mean, I don't want that day to happen, right? Like somehow I'm going to have to give an account for everything I've ever, uh, I've ever done. I mean, that's hard enough doing that with like people I love and know and, and, and who are sinners as well. I mean, can you imagine doing that with Jesus? He knows everything. You can't go, well, I was going, no, you weren't. Okay, you're right, Jesus, right? But somehow, in that day, it's going to be right. Because in that day when we see him, you got to understand, we will be able to have at least a glimpse in the way he sees things. And so what it means is on that day as a believer, that every single thing we've done in this life, we have to give an account. And the way Paul talks about it in Corinthians is that there's going to be rewards. And uh, we don't really understand what those rewards are going to be, or uh, uh, not awards, but rewards are going to be. But there's a way in which God is judging our actions and deeds and how we live our life in response to the gospel. And so, and I look at it this way, that in some ways it says some things are going to burn. Some things that we thought were good. Like, I'm, I'm going to stand before God, and he's going to say, hey, Ricardo, remember that sermon you preached, and you thought it was good, and everybody was like, good sermon, and you were like, yeah. and I was like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, I remember that. He goes, yeah, your heart wasn't really right, and that's going to burn. And I'm going to look at it and somehow be glad in that, because I'm understand that he's just in doing that. And then there's going to be moments that we've done things that we've, we don't even remember us doing, really. That we did it completely out of the goodness of the grace of God in our hearts. And he said, remember that? That was something that was done in response to my love. Remember when you loved that person? That was in response to my love. Remember when you, remember when you, remember, and all those things that says that you will have rewards. But there's no moment in that, in that time before the Lord will there be a fear that somehow we're going to be kicked out. It's not even a discipline moment. It's God just saying you're going to be going to give account for your life. That means everything that we do, we don't judge. Everything that we do, we don't willfully sin. Everything that we do, even our conscience, we want it to be shaped by the gospel. Everything that we do, we do it in the love and response of Jesus. Because in that moment, he's not judging us for our sins. The good news of the gospel is every single ounce of God's wrath that was meant for you and me because of our sin, God himself, the Father, poured out upon his son Jesus 2,000 years ago. It would be unjust for God to punish us again for our sin. We are completely loved by him. And in that moment, though we'll give an account, we'll be completely welcomed. In the same way that we're supposed to welcome others, Jesus himself has welcomed us freely by grace. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life and love of your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for the reality of truth. And God, we thank you for the freedom in which you've given us, Lord, in which we could look at your word and be shaped by your word. And whatever we land and wherever we land, God, help us to have the opportunity and the discernment and wisdom not to judge others, to lovingly welcome, welcome them in the same way that you welcome them in Jesus. And the same way that you welcome us in Jesus. God, I pray that we would take seriously that you are judge and that you are Lord. And following you and walking with you in a life of holiness, Lord, is only by trusting in the work of Jesus, remembering the work of Christ, and the empowering of the Holy Spirit in our life. May everything that we do with our hands flow from our hearts, Lord. May everything we do in loving one another, Lord, flow from the life and love that we have in Jesus. God, we pray that we'd constantly be amazed by the good news of Christ and that we've been redeemed, that we've been rescued. God, that the ultimate freedom is that we can know you and that we can use the opportunity of our freedom to be able to love and serve and welcome others. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.